Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 10 through 16. We've been going through a series uh, in this letter called 21st Century Church, and where we're looking at how the first century church in Corinth actually mirrors quite similarly what happens in our culture today. And a lot of the same questions that are addressed by Paul or asked by the Corinthians are then applicable today. And today we happen to come across divorce. So before I get there, I want to tell you um, last summer when we had the, all these forest fires, which is essentially is every year, um, there was a few particularly close to the cabin that my grandfather owned. So when we were up there that, that summer, um, I took my kids fishing. Actually, we all got in the boat as a family, and there's my five-year-old son and my seven-year-old daughter with their fishing rods, and we're trolling along peacefully in a shroud of smoke. We cannot see across the lake or where we are going. It's just dad knows how things happen. My wife is not particularly uh, comfortable on the water. Um, and so when the waves start coming in and the wind starts to blow a little bit, she thinks, okay, it's time to pack up, let's go home. Then in the distance, we hear a little bit of thunder, but we can't see where it's coming from which is another concern, but I'm a hardcore fisherman. And wouldn't you know, just at that moment, when the waves are rolling and there is thunder in the distance and we can't see, my boy catches his first fish. Now, he's, he follows the instructions. And when he feels that rod go, he yanks back on the thing. Now, his dad was dumb and didn't set it right. So out comes all of this line and makes this nest of a mess. But his first fish is on the backside of that line. So I hand my wife the steering wheel and I'm quickly trying to get this thing undone because of the fish. And Ashley is freaking out because this boat is bouncing around all over the place and she's thinking we're going to hit the rocks and it's, it's a little bit like this where it's counterintuitive and she's not quite getting it. She thinks if she goes this way that the boat should go that way, but it goes this way and it's, it's a mess. And we're spending time, I'm just like, go, go into the middle of the lake and I'm just praying, God, keep this fish on the line. Keep it on the line. It's his first one. And finally... I pull it in, and luckily the fish swallowed the hook, so it was all good. Now why do I tell you that? I, I tell you that because when, when I look at divorce, when I look at what the Bible has to say about it, when I look at our experience in relationships and love and what it looks like to commit to one another and deal with this sinful world, I think we end up in a circumstance where there is a mess in a line. And we actually forget about the fish on the end. You see, there's story after story of painful relationships that happen to such circumstances. I'll keep names. Uh, 
confidential. A, a man got, got, got married to his wife after dating for a long time, and on their wedding night, with all excitement, they go to the honeymoon suite, and she locks herself in the bathroom and says, I, I can't do this. See, what I haven't told you is that there was a sexual assault on me. And, and I, I can't do this. So for five years, he does not consummate his marriage. And he works at trying to help his wife through the trauma of her past. All the while, all of his friends telling him, just get rid of her. It's too much. It's not worth it. And at the end of the five years, she divorces him. Or, a man in ministry has a wife for 15 years and they have several children that are older. And throughout this 15 years, if you would look at them in public, you would see this happy couple. You would see a couple that seems like they're thriving and have it all together, but at home, beneath the surface, she is terrible to him. She undercuts him. She emotionally abuses him. She does not respect him, lies to him day after day after day after day. And then one day, he has an affair. And she finds out and divorces him. You see, there are so many threads in relationships to pull apart. And our minds move to, well, how, who's, who's at fault? How does this work? Is it, is it, is it the guy who, who was unfaithful? Was it the, the back room evil that happened? What about sexual assault or, or paths that are so difficult? You, you see, we, we, we come to relationships and we get married and essentially what it is, is it's like taking two pieces of construction paper and gluing them together. And when you go and you rip them apart, there is inevitably one piece on that side and another on that side. You cannot take them apart without destroying the other. And we, we know this. Very few people get divorced lightheartedly as if it was a decision they made over breakfast. Most of the time, divorce is painful and difficult and is heart-rending at the consequences that come from it. And I know that in this room, there are people 
who have experienced that pain and have spent time looking at the threads of entanglement and thinking, how did it get here? And I know that there are people in this room who are contemplating that because the path ahead seems impossible. It seems better just to cut the cord, let the fish go, and start again. So when we talk about divorce, I, I hope that what you hear from me is both biblically faithful and full of mercy. Because this is a real and painful challenge. But there are also some in the room that are thinking, no, my marriage is good. This is, this is not going to apply. Or I'm not married. I would encourage you to listen because I think that in talking about what divorce looks like in the Bible, we can actually get a very great picture, a robust picture of what marriage is and how then we can stay away from divorce. So if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 10 to 16, uh, the scripture will be on the, verse, on the screen behind us. Paul, talking to the Corinthians, says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, as it is they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So, so we'll look at this passage in, in, in three ways. First, we're going to understand a few of the details that Paul has to talk about, because sometimes Paul says things and you're like, what are you talking about? And then we'll look at what he talks about to the married and what he talks about to the rest. So first, Paul is answering questions that the Corinthians have. The first six chapters of Corinthians, he has heard a report and he is responding to that report and, and pushing the church towards unity. He's He's heard things that are difficult in the church that they're not doing correctly, and he pushes them towards unity, talking about how you deal with sin in amongst the church, what you should do with quarrels in the church, how you should deal with sexual immorality, what it looks like to be unified. 
And then he turns to the questions that the Corinthians have asked in a letter back. What do we do with this? And it seems that one of these questions was around divorce. How should we deal with our relationships in light of the gospel? What should we do? In light of this eminent coming of Christ, what should we do? Should we get divorced? Is it better to be divorced? If something happens, should we get divorced? If, if there's sin, should we get divorced? What about paganism? Should we get divorced? How should we deal with these things? And so Paul writes concerning these questions. Now, he talks about two categories, the married and the rest. In this particular space, God is, or Paul is calling the marrieds, those who are married, who are both believers, people who have come together in covenant relationship under Christ, where both see Jesus as their Lord and Savior, have believed the gospel and have been baptized. And the rest are a different category. Now, for those of you who might be perking up their ears and thinking, oh, hey, this might be a proof text for a little bit of flirt to convert business. No, 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 that's not what Paul's getting at. You see, when the gospel came to, to Corinth, there were people who heard it and believed. And there were people who heard it and rejected it. And it didn't fall cleanly in marriage lines. And so there was legitimate questions around what should I do if I previously was married by contract under Corinthian law to a, a spouse and now I've come to know Jesus. Should I sever this relationship so that I can remain holy? Does it defile me to share a marriage bed with somebody who is not a believer? A legitimate question. So when Paul is talking about the marrieds or the rest, he is talking about married couples. But what he's actually doing is saying, well, I think the marrieds is very covered by what Jesus said. But this is a new category of people, a new category that has to wrestle with what does it look like to live in a relationship that is unequally yoked because the Spirit has changed my heart. So, then, to the marrieds, Paul says this, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. Pause. Did you notice that here he says, not I, but the Lord. And in the next one, he says, not the Lord, but me. Some people, taking this to be, oh, like this, this part here that, that Paul is referring to is his authoritative word. And the next section is opinion. However, 
we need to see this a little bit differently because if you look at the end of chapter 7 in verse 40, Paul talks about his judgments being of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't about Paul opining about one side and being authoritative on the other. What he's saying here is Jesus has talked about this. And now I will expound on what that means in our new circumstance. That's the difference. So when he's talking to the Marys, he's saying Jesus has already talked about it, so I can be brief. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Regardless of which way you look at it, whether it's the wife leaving or the husband leaving, this should not be the case in Paul's mind. And if for some reason, for some sinful reason that should, that should have happened, then they should remain single as to not commit adultery against them or be reconciled. It's fairly straightforward. But you see, Paul's actually pointing back to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10 when he talks about divorce. Now, you're going to have to bear with me here a little bit because we have a little bit of something that's a little bit like um, scriptural inception in that um, Paul refers to Jesus and Jesus refers to Moses. And so we're going to be doing a little bit of dominoes back down towards the Old Testament. So you're just going to have to bear with me here for a little bit. So Paul refers to Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 10, which is one of three accounts of the gospel writers talking about Jesus, talking about divorce. The others are found in Matthew 19 and Luke chapter 16. Mark chapter 10, 1 to 4, starts like this. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. End of story. Now you might be thinking, where is this? Well, if we would flip back even further to Deuteronomy chapter 24, which is one of the five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Bible. In chapter 24, he outlines, at least in part, what it looks like to give a divorce. So let's read that together, and we'll move back towards what Jesus said. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or 
If the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after she has, uh, after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land, and the Lord your God is given you for inheritance. Now, now that sounds a little bit um, convoluted. I'm sorry, so you got divorced, and then you got remarried, and then you got divorced, or he died, and that somehow makes you unclean. What does that look like? And there's a, there's a whole piece there on what it looked like in Israel to get divorced, and what caused you to be unclean, and why that was the case. But for, for Jesus' purposes, he actually is looking at the beginning of verse 1, where it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. You see, the Pharisees debated over this word indecency. It was only found one other time in the writings of Moses in Deuteronomy 23. And they weren't quite sure what this word meant. And so there was two schools of thought on this idea. The Hillel group of Jews were a more liberal group, and they figured that this meant that if your wife burnt your toast, you could hand her a certificate of divorce because she had found disfavor with you. Sounds good, right? So if anything caused you discomfort, write a certificate of divorce. Moses said so. It's fine. Then there was another group called the Shammai who said, no, 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 no. That only applies to adultery. That only applies to when she has been unfaithful or he has been unfaithful. And so the debate raged. And throughout history, you can see each side arguing for either a liberal view of divorce or a very conservative view of divorce in the Jewish community. And so Jesus comes along in Mark chapter 10 and asks a trick question. He says, what does Moses say? And they say, well, wow, that's the thing. That's what we want clarity from you on because he gave us permission and we're asking, what does this look like? How do we untangle this mess? Are we allowed just to cut the cord? Can we just start anew over toast? Or does it have to be sexual impropriety? What, what is it, Jesus? Jesus' answer is really interesting in Mark chapter 10, starting again in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. See, Jesus 
in his question, asks what Moses said, and everybody's thinking, okay, let's look at the border. Where's the law line? That's what he's getting at. Okay, let's, let's engage in this debate. And Jesus is saying, no, you've actually forgotten about what Moses originally said. That marriage is not some man construct, but designed and, and a means and a purpose by God. For God. You've missed the point if you're looking at when is it okay to get divorced. Because it is God-ordained, God-purposed, and it is used by God. See, God's creative intention was to bring man and woman together as one flesh, to show his goodness. And Pharisees, you're getting stuck in the details of when I can get out of this arrangement. You know, the sad part is that that's my experience as a pastor. Is that I sit in my office across from people who are hurting and their question is, how do I get out of this? Where's the line? Is, is it when he speaks badly to me? Is it when we haven't had sex for this long? Is it when I don't love him anymore? When is it okay for me to get divorced? But you see, we fall into the same fallacy because there has not been a single person that has come and sat in my office and said, how do I make this marriage God-honoring? How is God using this for my good? We are so good at looking for the out clause, the loophole, instead of the purpose, instead of the design. You see, marriage is an act of God. Now look, it took me a long time to get my wife, Ashley. I, I liked her from when I was 16 years old. She did not like me. Why are you laughing at that? Is that an understanding laugh? I'm not, I don't know. She was not interested in me at all, but I, I knew, oh man, there's something in this girl. And I tried to just be her friend. Let's, let's like, I don't know, like let's just, let's just stay kind of in the wings here. I can show her how good a guy I am. I invited her to my grad. She came, I don't know if it was begrudgingly or not, she came and we had a great time, it was awesome. And then a whole year went by and nothing. And then the next year, she invited me to her grad. I was like, oh, 
That's fantastic. Oh, I'm making headway here. This is fantastic, right? Then I asked her out on a date. She said, yes. <gasps> you went on a date? And then she said, I'm going to university. I'm not interested. Okay. Okay, fine, fine. Three years later, three years after that point, we started dating. And for our engagement, I had made a memory box years before, or not years, months before, and I had actually purchased the engagement ring, and I had hollowed out a secret compartment in it, and I put the ring inside, and then I gave her the box to hold all of the memories that we had, our first movie, our first this, our that, or whatever. And so she could put it all inside there. And then when I went to propose months later, I said, you need to bring the memory box along. She's like, why? And we went through that. I asked her some questions, but I made it a little bit difficult. I said, look, here's the thing. If you don't get these questions right, I'm going to take a piece of the memory box apart. That's just the way that... So I would ask her really hard questions so that she would have to. And she started to mine some things. What, what was the first movie we saw? Why did we do this? And as that would happen, I would take a screw out. would remove a piece. I had made it in such a way. And, and she's, getting, she's getting so terribly emotional because I'm taking apart her box. And slowly I'm revealing this ring. So like, this is, this is really cool, right? This is fantastic. All my doing right? She was blown away. Yes, it was fantastic. That's wonderful. And in that moment, I thought, Jason, you are so romantic. You're amazing. You did this. You've spent all these years convincing her that you're the guy. You've done it. And now when we get into marriage, I think I'm doing it. I'm giving her a back rub. I'm doing the dishes. I'm putting our kids to bed. But I've got it wrong. My marriage is a work of God. He granted me the insight to woo my wife and have her see me in that light so that we could have covenant together before him. It is God's work, not mine. We lose sight of that. That doesn't mean I shouldn't work, but we lose sight of the fact that it's God's. But some of you are saying, but you don't, you don't know my marriage I've sat across people with tears streaming down their face at their wit's end because their marriage is or feels hopeless. How could God do that? But that's where we lose sight of the second thing, which is that marriage is there for your holiness. You see, even when Paul talks about a man or a woman getting divorced, or Jesus talks about it, 
They sin against their spouse if they were to get remarried because it's a covenant before God. But you see, God is perfectly clear that he redeems and uses difficult circumstances to bring about your holiness and his glory. Pick up your cross is his mantra. Romans 5 says, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Or James chapter 1, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see, God uses difficult things to make us holy. Now, I need to make a little caveat here. That does not mean that you should put yourself in danger. That does mean that we need to be wise about the sin that we're encountering in our spouse and how we deal with it and respond to it. If you are in danger, physically, emotionally, spiritually, or your children are, it is safe, it is good to separate from your spouse so that we can, you can help bring healing, repentance, reconciliation. That just needs to be made clear. But in a lot of circumstances, it is just the muck and mire of marriage and the poor decisions that are made that lead to strife. And it is in those poor decisions that God continues to work towards your holiness. And we lose that. So are there any exceptions? Yes. Two. First, Jesus in Matthew 19 verse 9 says this. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. See, Jesus holds ground saying, look, if you divorce your spouse for anything other than sexual immorality, you commit adultery. So, then, it is permissible to divorce should your spouse be unfaithful. However, I would like to remind us that there's a difference between repentance and unrepentant sin. That there is a difference in disposition between somebody who is willfully sinning, committing adultery, and one who is repentant of their sin. I would remind you that Jesus asks their husbands to love their wives as, uh, wives as Christ loved the church. I would remind you that Jesus said, love your neighbor. And finally, that Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So although the window is there, our disposition needs to be towards reconciliation, towards repentance, towards wholeness. But Paul talks about a second reason, now moving all the way back to our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, to the rest, I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So Jesus gives us the first window, the first place in which divorce would be allowed, sexual immorality. And here Paul says that there's a second one which the church has called desertion. Essentially, that if an unbelieving spouse decides to walk away, you as a believing spouse are free from that marriage bond. Paul talks about the idea of peace, that we are called to peace. You see, he looks back to Romans 17, where he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You see, it seems here that Paul's priority has shifted when there's a believer and an unbeliever. Now, what Paul is concerned about is the gospel witness. That, as a believer, you would represent Christ well. That you would live at peace with those who don't follow Christ in order that you might save them through your good actions. See, marriage is God's design. It is intended to bring about holiness, but it's also intended to display the gospel. Marriage is designed to be a physical representation of the gospel that people can look at tangibly and see what Christ has done for us, the church. So, Paul, when it comes to these believers who are in a relationship with unbelievers, is saying, your allegiance is to the cross. But the cross demands that you live at peace with your unbelieving spouse. So if that means loving them as Christ loved the church and staying in relationship with them, that's what you do. If it means that as hard as it may be, they walk away from you because of your faith, you let that happen. Because you are called to be a witness of Christ and live at peace. 1 Peter 3, 1-4, Peter picks up on this. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is which in God's sight is very precious. Both Paul and Peter point to a disposition that says, 
We represent the gospel, and that supersedes all things. We live our marriages under that directive at all times. God has called you to live at peace. And that is a higher calling. So when we look at divorce, what we actually see is a huge, God-sized picture of what marriage is. The challenge is that a lot of times we are looking at the mess of the tangle and not looking at the fish. But there are a lot of us in this room that think there is no hope. Yeah, but you don't know. Yeah, but you just have not experienced. So then, where is that See, the gospel is a picture of a bride who has walked away from her husband and who has been an adulterous bride and taken so many different idols into her heart and scorned her husband, mocked him, undermined him, laughed at him, hurt him, and nailed him to a tree. And yet her husband hung on that cross and said, Father, forgive her, for she does not know what she is doing. See, Christ came to exemplify for us what it looks like to be a godly spouse. And it is actually only when we start to focus on the facts that God ordained your marriage. God is using your marriage to make you more like him. And God is using your marriage to show the world how much he loves it. So we have to start there. That is where our hope comes from. That is where our motivation comes from. That is where our strength comes from. Not on strategy, not on figuring out the threads, although that's a that we need to do, but on who and what God has and is doing in our lives. But then 
I say this, to those of you who are sitting on the precipice of divorce, looking at your marriage in hopelessness, know this, God is the God of the impossible. He holds the stars in the sky. He raises people from the dead and he can raise your marriage from the dead. Do not look towards the loopholes. Do not look towards the exits, but look towards a God who is able. Come and talk to us about how we can help you strengthen and build into your marriage. Come and seek wisdom on how to navigate these difficult circumstances. But if you're in this room and you have been divorced and you reflect on it and you think, man, my divorce was caused by so much sin and I think it was sinful, know this, Jesus paid for that sin. It is not unforgivable. God promises that a humble and contrite heart he will forgive. Seek him in repentance and he will forgive you. Too often, we think divorce is some scarlet letter sin that is unforgivable. Christ paid for it on the cross. And in that, we have great hope. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this is such a weighty topic. So I pray, God, your spirit would move in our hearts and convict us where we need to be convicted. God, would you bring joy in that you are working in and through us. God, would you grant us hope? Would you give us courage to address sin? Father, would you help us to show the world how good you are and lean in to our, to our marriages with reconciliation, repentance in mind, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.